everyone, and welcome to the 73rd episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Richard Salzman. I'm a senior scholar for the Atlas Society, and we're the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people uh, to the ideas of Ayn Rand in creative ways, such as through animated videos and graphic novels. Now, today, I'm so delighted. I'm so pleased because we're joined by Dr. Carrie Ann Biondi. And before I introduce her, though, I want to remind those of you, some of you are watching us on Zoom, some on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, oh, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, and you can use the comments section uh, to type in comments and questions. And uh, as we proceed through the interview, uh, we'll get to as many of those as we can. So I'm, I'm viewing those as well as our wonderful guests. So quickly. Dr. Carrie Ann Biondi was a professor of philosophy for 25 years, most recently at uh, Marymount Manhattan College. And she's the book review editor. She used to be the entire editor of the journal Reason Papers, an academic journal, a prestigious academic journal. She's also an advisor to the Great Connections, um, which is uh, dedicated to education designed to strengthen students' reasoning skills and independent judgment. And there's gonna be some aspects to that pedagogy that she loves that are gonna come up today. So officially welcome Dr. Viandi. So glad to have you with us. Thanks Richard, it's great to be here talking with you. Well, we ha I have many questions and I, as you know, have known you for quite a while, but also read your material more closely, especially in recent weeks, but have followed it over the years. I, I, I have to tell you one of the more interesting juxtapositions I've seen and in, in what you've said over the years. One time you said something like, there's something about university students I've learned over the years that they're not always quite prepared to come to college and they don't really know what studying means and they don't not the test take, all that kind of thing. And yet at the same time, you said you at age five said, I wanna be a teacher. And so just the contrast between the two, like you knew what you wanted to do at five. At 18, they're still not sure what they wanna do. But talk about the talk about when you were five and how did you know that? How did you know that then that you wanted to be a teacher? Uh, well, the story is uh, I remember quite vividly going to school. I actually had already learned how to read, uh, not through any direct teaching by my mother, uh, although she did read books to me. I remembered watching uh, Electric Company and it must have been phonetics because I remember like songs that had sounds and I figured out how to read before I got to kindergarten. So when I get there, they have all these cool books and we didn't have many books at home. So I would play with the build things. I would read books and just be so excited about learning things, especially through these books, things I'd never heard of or seen before and people around me hadn't talked about. So I would run home and my little brother who was a year younger than me, uh, I would make, I would talk to him about what I was learning. I would show him things and try to teach him what I was learning because I was so excited to learn about new things and was just had this burning curiosity. Uh, and uh, when he did like get excited by what I was bringing home to him and I would do this every year. And when I got old enough to create like workbooks and things I would make them for him. I would design these special uh, uh, write things and, and create math workbooks and have him do them and give him feedback. And if he asked me things I didn't understand, I would go to the, the library in school and read up on it so I could talk to him about what he was interested in. I just loved that process so much. I knew that I always wanted to keep doing that. And I found out that to do that, you have to be a teacher. So that was it. It sold me. That's that process, that transformation, the illumination is what sold me. That's fascinating. I think one of the interesting things about the answer is sometimes you hear people will say a particular teacher, Mrs. Smith or Mr. Jones. I think your answer is so very interesting because it isn't specific to a person. You called it a burning curiosity. There's a, it was something about the whole process too. It wasn't just a one-off, right? A one-off a one -off teacher, a one-off class, because that might've been ephemeral, but this was more lasting. Uh, obviously, uh, obviously much more. At the time, was it hard to make friends because other girls and guys weren't ner were nerdy? Like, you? I'm not saying you were nerdy, but I, they didn't oh, want to be oh. a teacher like you. They wanted to be a fireman or a policeman or something. 
Uh, well, that's that's interesting you bring that up because I actually had very few friends growing up. Uh, I, I was viewed as unusual and of course weird. And I was okay with that because yeah. if they weren't interested in what I was interested in, I'd just go climb up in a tree and read a book or draw pictures yeah. and just do my own thing. So I actually had very few friends because of my peculiar interest. Now the uh, decision, I know, I think in the beginning, your interest was American studies, not really philosophy, but American studies. But somewhere along the way, did you think to yourself, you know, I like American studies, but it really isn't that. It goes deeper. Is that the way you would put it, that it's deeper? What is American studies versus, I think I know what it is, but you can tell me, what is American studies versus going into philosophy, say? American studies I was intrigued by because I was interested in literature and history, political science, and the intersection of ideas. So if I wanted to study, say, liberty or individuality, how did that get reflected in literature of different time periods? How is it the ideas understood and embody in political documents? Yeah. Uh, what uh, and so uh, or manifested through political institutions? Uh, and how did people are, you know, what were different views about that? How do they get embodied in those different uh, aspects of human experience? So I was really interested in intellectual history, the history of ideas at the intersection of disciplines, but that only took me so far. I kept asking questions about, okay, well, uh, is this conception of it true? Uh, is this the right one? Uh, is this system of government really good? And they're like, well, we don't deal with those questions in these disciplines. And I was finally recommending grad school to go take a philosophy course. And I did. And I changed my major in graduate school because I was interested in issues of how to justify your beliefs to figure out what's true and what's really good. So because I wanted to know what was real and to live really well. Now, the American study sounded interdisciplinary. When you went into philosophy, did you ever partway through think, oh my gosh, this is too specialized. It's not the interdisciplinary thing I expected. Or no, you're saying no. No, because the, the graduate program I went to at Bowling Green State University, it was actually at the time the only graduate program in philosophy. It was called a PhD in applied philosophy. Ah, apply, okay, applied, yeah. And so it was highly, uh, even though I, I had a lot of philosophy to get under my belt, I had a lot to learn in terms of the different fields. Uh, all the professors uh, who I took courses with uh, were very well studied, for example, in economics, political theory. They encouraged me to keep reading literature so that my writing didn't become boring and dull and hyper analytic without uh, traction in the human experience. And we were required to take a certain number of courses outside of philosophy when we figured out our focus for our dissertations. And yeah. I did mine in um, political science yeah. uh, as my uh, my secondary area of study be, uh, in order to inform my dissertation topic on uh, express consent theories and the implications for citizenship. And certainly, was it called social? It's called social philosophy and policy. The journal itself is very that comes out of Bowling Green, Fred Miller and those uh, really prestigious interdisciplinary journal though, very interdisciplinary. Sometimes whole issues would be devoted to one you know, practical topic and, but from all different angles. Uh, yes, because the, uh, even though the, the Social Philosophy and Policy Center, which uh, my dissertation chair, Fred Miller, he yeah. was the executive director of uh, while it was housed at Bowling Green for decades. Right. Uh, the, they would have, uh, professors from all different disciplines uh, come and present on a particular topic, say natural law theory. Yeah. And they would give economists, philosophers, political yeah. theorists, lawyers, uh, occasionally people from literature if it if it uh, worked well. So it was it was a wide variety of people That's uh, from different. Yeah. So they they made they made sure that uh, it was highly interdisciplinary in terms of who presented and the kind that really up the ante on really wonderful questions people would ask, connections people would make. I found it to be one of a wonderful graduate uh, educational experience. Did that, is that also where you picked up early editing skills? Were you helping edit the journal? Like what you yes. do with Reason, what you've done at uh, Reason Papers for many years, that where that began? Absolutely, because uh, starting in the 
early to mid 1990s when I was working uh, when I was um, working my uh, graduate degrees at Bowling Green. Uh, I was invited to uh, to do part of my graduate assistantship, and then I worked. I was employed part time after the assistantship was up uh, at the uh, Social Philosophy and Policy Center as a copy editing assistant on their journal. So I really learned my my editing chops there. Now I saw you gave a lecture, a really fabulous lecture, and you named three favorites uh, among uh, philosophers over the centuries. Aristotle, Locke, Rand. My question is why those three and which one did you come to first and how do they relate to each other? Are they overlapping? Or are they saying different things, same things? I'm curious why those three and uh, how you came to them. Okay, great question. Uh, they overlap in some ways, but not, uh, so Aristotle and Rand overlap in some ways and Locke and Rand overlap in different ways. And each of them are significantly different from Rand in important regards. Uh, Aristotle, uh, what I really came to appreciate about Aristotle, not only his system of formal logic he developed, and the fact that he was such a systematic and kind of like developed the early scientific, uh, if not, uh, you know, the scientific method, the way that say, say Bacon and, and, and others had in the early modern period developed, uh, rooting it in experience. He had a proto-scientific method and right. he looked to the natural world to understand it and uh, the natures of things to understand causality. Yeah. And it was such a powerful account and he systematically integrated those insights into the natural realm from studying animals and plants to the nature of human beings to, and he did it with a direct realism theory of perception. Yeah. Uh, that he would he incorporated as the grounding for understanding human nature to inform human ethics, politics, yeah. aesthetics. Uh, while I don't agree with everything he had argued about economics and law, uh, this is where Locke come, enters the picture. Locke really revolutionized political uh, philosophy. Yeah. And so what I appreciated about Locke was his uh, not only critiquing Robert Filmer's divine right of kings yeah. theory and and monarch and monarchism as such, yeah. but that he made individual rights front and center in the political domain and that the individual is the starting point, get a methodological individualism uh, and uh, discussed rights as something that's rooted in nature and not convention and that it's not handed down by divine command and right. through a king. Yeah. And his economic theory about you need to produce. Yeah. And, and so every person labors and has to create wealth. And then you trade that and economies develop was an, an amazing insight for his time period. And, that, and role, that, the role that, of that first amazing argument for private property, probably the first time anyone even thought of how do you justify private property? The labor and all that. that yeah. Rand. Rand Different from the other two, how, Rand? Uh, well, well, she's also just as systematic as Aristotle and Locke in terms of going to fundamentals of metaphysics and epistemology, seeing how that spins out to the different domains. Yeah. Um, what she added for me, uh, well, first, most powerfully, because the first thing of hers I ever read when I was 19 uh, was The Fountainhead. Ah. I fell in love with it right away. I read, I stayed awake for two and a half days to read it. Uh -uh. <laughs> I, could, I, I couldn't put it down. I loved it. I yeah. fell in love with uh, the character of Howard Rourke, his independent, his fierce independence. Yeah. Uh, it was like the ultimate hero's journey, but one that's not based in fantasy and science fiction. This to me was, wow. He made a lot of choices and said things that resonated with me because there were many ways in which I thought oh, I'm, I'm kind of similar <laughs> and uh, in standing up for what I believe in. And if that means I'm not going to make a lot of money right now because I'm pursuing what's of value to me and I'm creating something meaningful. And uh, then so be it. I'm not going to compromise on my standards uh, because other people want to pressure me into it. And so, so the gripping fictional example of somebody who was striving for a grand moral achievement, right? It's a heroic 
story and fiction, but one that also is very real. It's possible. I can make choices every single day of my life to uh, work to achieve that in my own way, in the things that I have, I find meaningful and purposive. So that's it. So the literature really grabbed me. Just the joyful and benevolent spirit of it. I, I just had never read, and I wrote read voraciously all kind of literature. And this was this literature was like nothing I'd ever read before. And the ideas I just thought were marvelous. Yeah, and the virtue of independence really runs through the Fountainhead so much. It's not like it doesn't have the other virtues. Of course, it does product productiveness and and that rationality. But independence, yes. And I and I know you've said, and I know you believe pedagogically. You, you promote that in your students. I mean, you really want them to be independent thinkers and mm -hmm. right, say, say a little bit about that, that you learn independence through RAND, but then you're also saying, you know, this has to be instilled with, in my students too, if I can. Absolutely. And before I speak to that particular point, there's one last piece of my, what drew me to RAND, I'd like to say, because it was so different, uh, even from Locke. Locke went so far, but RAND provided a moral justification for for work in a way that mm. also she avoided all kinds of false dichotomies that that crop up in all kinds of other people's work. So she doesn't fall into the mind-body dichotomy, the you know, self-other dichotomy. There's so many dichotomies she avoided. And yeah. because of that, the fact that you are the ultimate work of your life, your character, who you are as a self. She had the most integrated view of a human self I had ever encountered and have ever encountered. And, and that's at the root of her trader principle, like creating that value of you as a person yeah. and, uh, and freely uh, trading what you create of value with others if they're willing to trade with you. And if they don't see value in what you create, then that's okay. Uh, then And so she, she gave this marvelous uh, moral grounding of, of capitalism and uh, of this this harmonious uh, way of individuals coming to one another with the best of themselves. Uh, and so that that to me was also a big draw. And part of the best of you is and to create things of value is this independence aspect. Because when you create things that really are not, they don't emerge from you. And I think this is as true of artistic works as of anything else, uh, any kind of material product or service or, or whatnot, that when you create something that is authentic and stands apart, people can, that reflects who you are. Like it's not an end other people see its value. It can serve some of their needs. They see value in it. There's also that something extra special that independence achieves. You're not trying to imitate somebody else. You see something that you would like to bring into the world and you can help create a niche that is very unique. And that comes about through independence. Apart, and, and independence um, has to be cultivated from the right, inside out. Yep. There's no other way, nobody can give it to you. It, all of the virtues are achieved by you. Knowledge is achieved by an individual mind. Independence is achieved by looking at the world and trying to figure out what's true. And it doesn't mean you don't, you don't seek conversation from others or uh, critiques from others, yeah. uh, but that feeds into you reflecting on whether something's warranted uh, to be believed. And I would, my, my students would pressure me to say, oh, what, what do you think about this topic or this issue? I would refuse to answer and say, the only thing you're gonna know that I believe is that it's important for you to think for yourself yeah. about anything you ever study, the intellectual independence uh, on evidence-based grounds, evidence and reasoning and argumentation uh, in the larger context of understanding how this holds up against competing views. But ultimately you have to come to your own conclusions. If you don't choose to think and act by your own lights, there are lots of other people who do it for you. What kind of life will that be? Yeah. Is that a life worth living? Where is your meaning and purpose in your life if you are not there, if you have not independently achieved that? So uh, they, they heard that loud and clear. <laughs> and, uh, and when they inhabited the space for students who were willing to 
take the courageous steps to work on those skills, uh, they thank me later for letting them learn how to know their own minds because it made them less afraid to talk to other people. That's fabulous. You know, these three thinkers, it strikes me also, Dr. Biondi, that Aristotle, Locke, Rand, they were not rationalists. They were empiricists, if you want to use that word. They were in, into, into induction, basing their philosophies on reality, the facts of reality. And philosophy professors tend to get the reputation for being detached from reality, for dealing in abstractions that are unrelated to the real world. So I think that the fact that these are your three favorites that must be known to students, they must see this. And then plus you're saying, by the way, these, the, the, best, the best part of philosophy is improving your life and, and flourishing. Uh, that must strike them as, wow, this is really a practical, a practical benefit. By the way, at some point you must've also realized, oh my gosh, I actually love a philosophy that's in the minority. So your own independence was necessary just to you know, fend off the idea of what I am not in the majority here in regards to Rand, Locke, Aristotle, right? Generally in professional philosophy, those are not the three, the three top ones uh, among your colleagues, so to speak. That, that, while that's true, at the time when I was absorbed in encountering and studying them, it never occurred to me that they were outsiders to the academy because it didn't matter to me. Yeah. What other people thought really didn't matter to me. That's what I love. Okay, that's what I love about you. I mean, that's, yes, that's the point. And there has been a revival in Aristotle scholarship, though, wouldn't you say, over the last 25 years? It's a lot more respectable than it was in the 60s and 70s. Yes, and uh, virtue ethics as yeah. a field in moral philosophy. There's a really great uh, essay by uh, Ms. Anscombe on yeah. modern moral philosophy. Yeah. And uh, people like her, Philippa Foote, uh, Rosalind Hursthouse, uh, many others. Yeah. Uh, uh, really got swept up in the resurgence of virtue ethics as an alternative to utilitarianism and deontology. And I think that was a, a big part of the push. Yeah. Uh, now let's, if, if we could, cause I think it's a good segue and we're getting great questions by the way. So those of you who have, those of you who have asked questions, I do have my eye on the questions and I will turn to some of the questions. I'm trying to think how to fit them in here, but let, let, me, let me get a few more things uh, out of Professor Biondi. I think it's a good segue when you talked about students and uh, the, your expectations for them and promoting their independent thinking and stuff. I think this might be a good time for, for tell the audience a bit about your view of pedagogy or teaching methods or teaching systems and specifically i know you are very big on the socratic approach and i saw you in one uh, presentation distinguish it from well obviously from the lecture approach but also what you call the discussion approach was it which isn't really the same thing as socratic you know this discussion idea of you know throw an idea out there and it becomes a bull session could you talk a little bit about why you're so big on the socratic method what it is why you're a believer in it is it applicable to all sorts of students, just small seminars? I'm curious, just your view of that pedagogy. Okay, well, I kind of backed my way into it because hmm. I knew that there was a lot lacking in my own education. I spent a lot of my time growing up was reading books in the library and yep. you know, went through curriculum and, and they weren't allowed to give me stuff from the next year's curriculum. So yeah. I was like, okay, well, give me a pass to the library so I can at least read some more. Yeah. So I, I, and, or I would get A's on papers and I wouldn't know why. Yeah. So I was like, well, I don't want to be like that. Yeah. And to be lectured, I knew that there's a lot I didn't understand. So when I started teaching in early on in graduate school, I was, uh, I started teaching my own independent philosophy courses. I was groping for a different way of engaging with students, one that I, I would have appreciated had I been you know, their, their age yeah. and I um, wanted to do better. And so I was backing my way into, okay, here's this reading. So Socratic, what's central to Socratic, which makes it different from just a open-ended, like not anchored to anything discussion that can turn into a BS session, uh, that that, what anchors Socratic is you have a shared object of study. So there's something real out there outside of your mind in the world. 
that holds you and your conversation partners accountable. And you're trying to understand what this is together, but you also have to really carefully read it. And it may not be a reading. It could be a work of art. It yeah. could be a scientific experiment. It could be, you know, studying architecture, whatever it happens to be the object of study in the world. It is the thing to which you are accountable when you make claims. So you have to have evidence-based reasoning in a Socratic, and then based on what you're observing, what can you conclude from that? So there's so Socratic's anchored in the shared object of study, and it's very rigorous, and you have to learn uh, norms of conversation with people so one person doesn't dominate. Uh, you draw on your conversation partners because you can get really awesome questions and insights from people. Uh, that would never have occurred to you perhaps by yourself that provoke a new chain of reasoning for you to help enrich your your thought process and provoke it further so i found that so i kind of backed my way into it and that's where 1996 97 i came across a book in the library the first one i'd ever seen on the socratic method written by michael strong who i was not going to meet in in real life until like 20 years later and now he's a friend of mine uh, the Habit of Thought? The yes, habit The Habit of Thought. Oh, yeah. One splendid book on the nature of Socratic seminars and Socratic practice and how to help students achieve being ready for that type of rigorous conversation. And I think it could be done across all kinds of subject matters. People like, oh, you can't do that math and science. Yes, you can. And I think a key to understanding that is how I ultimately got interested in Montessori learning. Yeah. Because Montessori learning has you work with materials in the world, and you're actually building up a very precise mathematical understanding and, and going from particulars to basic concepts to higher levels of abstraction. And you uh, you can work with somebody who's um, a kind of specialist in the field and yeah. other other peers who are also interested in that particular area of study. And you discuss it, like, how do we tackle this problem? Uh, what's what's the what's the next logical step? What's your evidence for that? And you kind of apprentice your way into learning. It's interesting because the Montessori approach traditionally went up, I think, to the eleventh uh, or the sixth grade, which would be an eleven-year-old. And the but the Socratic shares possibly with the Socratic method this idea of you respect the independence of the student. But you're also giving them a kind of a structured environment with which within which they can grow and uh, so the socratic method basically the idea there is material that all are referring to but you're asking them questions and you're probing they're not leading questions they're not loaded questions but you're trying to invite from them an interpretation of it isn't part of it is that they interact with each other the students start debating and discussing among each other and i i meant i, I was fascinated one time you said especially if they're older like if they're seniors and college you said something really fascinating you said you know they get the idea of conveying ideas where they may disagree so they get just used to disagreeing with each other but disagreeing disagreeably but then also they get used to what they'll eventually do in in the workplace they're going to be working with other people and differing on things it could be business could be the arts so, that, so it helps too in that transition right you're preparing them for the transition yeah absolutely and that those are the kinds of I don't know, people call this soft skills, or whatever kind of skill you want to call it. These yeah. are transferable skills to any kind of workplace, yeah. uh, any any field of study, and to be able to be open to the world. And other human beings are part of the world. And they, and, uh, they can be part of your ongoing conversation of learning the world better and helping you see things that you might uh, have missed otherwise or pushing you to understand your own views better. If people challenge you, can you rise to the challenge or do they have good counter evidence that you must take into account? Yeah. Speaking of Socratic dialogues, what's your favorite Plato? Do you have a favorite? I know you love the dialogues. You're not a Platonist, you're, you're an Aristotelian, but I've read them too and they're just adorable. I mean, they're so fun to read. A lot more fun to read maybe than Aristotle. What's your, do you have a favorite? Uh, out of all the dialogues, my favorite to teach, yeah. and the one that I think provoked me to think about a wide variety of issues more than any other, might be surprised is a relatively brief dialogue, the Crito. Oh gosh, I would I didn't want to tell you what my favorite was. I was just hoping you would say the Crito. 
I had no idea that was yours too, but yes, and I teach it at I teach it at Duke. But tell us a bit about. I mean, this is this is the hemlock and the whole thing. This is okay. Well, the, the he-, he doesn't. No, it's later. Spoiler alert, he doesn't drink the hemlock to Libido. But, but he's, yeah. this is after his trial, right? And Socrates yeah. has been condemned and he's in prison and he's got yes. his buddies coming to him saying, hey, we can spring you. And okay, tell me why you like it. In addition to being relatively brief so that students have the time to read it a few times, That's true. it immediately brings to the surface issues that are important to students. And they, they said they're at a time in their life when they're deeply meaningful to them. So here's Crito begging Socrates to get sprung out of prison. He's raised money. He says, Socrates, you're my friend. I don't want to see you die. We don't want to lose the most amazing person we've ever met. Yeah. So friendship is on the table. What would you do for a friend? Right. And Socrates is trying to persuade his friend that if he really values what Socrates values as a friend, uh, he would... He needs to understand why Socrates is doing this as a matter of personal integrity. He needs to let Socrates be himself. Now, I don't agree with all the things that Socrates says, but his example of living and dying with integrity yeah. is extremely powerful. The conversation about what friends should or shouldn't do is very powerful. And the issue of civil disobedience. Yes. Uh, that's students love discussing. We could discuss the Crito dialogue for a month yeah. and not run out of things to discuss about it. How it, you know, how that sparks students to think about, well, what's the justification for obedience to laws? Is there one? What is it? What would you be willing to do if you thought a law was unjust? Right. And even it, and everyone in the Crito, Socrates himself, who's a victim, they all believe he's un, been unjustly convicted. And yet, and yet Socrates is saying, okay, but I'm not going to go against the rule. If we don't have the rule of law and civility, I don't like how this came out against me, but it's so powerful. Yeah. And he said, look, the, I have chosen to live under these laws for 70 years. Yeah. And I knew that the deal was persuade yeah. Yeah. people to change the law or obey them. I tried to persuade them. I'm not willing yeah. to stop practicing philosophy. Yeah. Hence, so he's he's he knows what he's doing is against the laws. He can't persuade them to change them or to or to let him off the hook. So he's going to obey them. Who is um oh I'm I'm uh, amazed that you cite that. Yeah, but you probably know the dialogues better than I do, but I love that one. Okay. Well, I did translate this one out of the ancient Greek, so yeah. I know it pretty well. Who's better on friendship, Aristotle or Rand? On the just on the issue, the virtue—it's not really a virtue, but how would you characterize Aristotle's view of friendship? Is it similar to Rand's? Does he have more to say about it than she? I'm just curious. Friendship, Aristotle, Rand. What do you think? I know you've thought a lot about this and written about it. Friendship. I have, and actually, I'm writing. I'm working on a new project. I'm going to present at a conference next month on. Aristotle and Ayn Rand on friendship. So I'm actually in the middle of fleshing out uh, this. Uh, I think Aristotle's views about character friendship, because uh, he he's ethically an egoist and uh-huh. provides a really wonderful justification for the value that what he calls it's kind of a virtue. He doesn't call it a straight out virtue. He's like he says it's like a virtue. A friendship, the value of character friends and the role that that plays in achieving a good life. He has he spends 20 percent of the Nicomachean Ethics books, eight and nine, just on friendship. It's a marvelous account. He gives a lot of philosophical space to it. Yeah. Well, Rand doesn't in her nonfiction work. She doesn't have extensive discussions about friendship, certainly nothing uh, near as well. Right. Uh, Aristotle had written about, but what she does is she exemplifies it in her novels. Yeah. So work starts out with the only person who he's quasi friends with, and I wouldn't call him a character friend, is Peter Keating. Otherwise, we don't see him having friends. And so he develops deeply meaning, uh, meaningful, what I think Aristotle will call character friendships, right? People attracted by one another's 
seeking to live up to the best within them, being moved to live good lives and yeah. being willing to be dedicated to the truth and to pushing one another toward that best within them. And she shows how Rourke develops these, these very close friendships with Mike Donegan and Stephen Mallory and and you know we see him a collect a very small cohort of deeply meaningful friendships in the course of the narrative and John Galt has two friends right he met from college age who they had been through thick and thin together so I think Rand shows in her novels what is really in many ways resonant with Aristotle's character friendship Imagine you see two friends have a falling out and one of them says, I'm, uh, I'm not loyal to a person. I'm loyal to principles. What, what is that? How does that sound to you? Does that sound okay? In a way, yes. And in a way, no. Okay. Sorry, that's a very Aristotelian response. That's okay. It understood in some way, yes, and in the, in the qualified way, no. Yeah. Uh, I actually, my first published article uh, was on the possibility of, possibility of liberal patriotism, like can classical liberalism defend patriotism? Yeah. That is love, love of one's country. Yes. And uh, I actually made parallels between that argument that was running that, yes, you can love your country. Uh, a necessary condition is that it, embodies and seeks to live up to, even if it imperfectly does so, uh, the principles you think are right and good. Right. Uh, and, uh, and, but that's not a sufficient condition for have, for selecting this particular state. Yeah. So, and I thought it, there's this interesting parallel between that phenomenon and friends. So uh, there are certain things that are in terms of underlying values or principles that are deal breakers for me. Like I might, be able to civilly get along with with a wide variety of people up to a point but yeah. people who are going to become my character friends the there are certain principles or values that would need to be present as a necessary condition and but not everybody who holds those principles or seeks those values do i end up becoming friends with it just doesn't gel brand has this wonderful phrase about the style of a person's soul like yeah. Everybody's so in, in amazingly unique and they have different ways about them that may attract you and in other individuals, the way that those ideas are held or embodied, it just doesn't quite sit the same way. So to the extent that the necessary and sufficient conditions are present, the principles are there and there's the in, in, in particular embodiment of yeah that in a person, uh, if somebody's uh, sincerely in good faith striving to live up to those principles, I, I think that the distinction, like I'm loyal to principles and not persons per se, it's like, well, it's not like there's this disembodied value and idea hopping right. around out there right. outside of a body, I'm loyal to that, 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 right. this, that makes no sense. That's, right. that's a, a, friends a may floating abstraction. Yeah, so friends may disappoint us and then we have to make the judgment of, is that an out of the ordinary thing? Is that is that them or is that a repeat offense or something like that? That's a good distinction. I'm going to go to some of these comments and questions. And sure. by, I have to start with this one. You will love this. Uh, I don't know. You have a fan out there. It says she would do well with her own talk show. She is the kind of person you would definitely invite into your living room. OK, so that's not that's not really a question, but I love that comment. Uh, Thank you. So you have someone who will sign up for a living room chat with you. Okay, some other ones. Uh, well, your favorite book by Rand, I assume it's The Fountainhead. Favorite book is The Fountainhead. Favorite fiction book is The Fountainhead. Favorite character? Howard Rourke. Rourke. I thought you'd say that. Um, thought, okay, here's one. Uh, you and I actually talked off stage about this. What do you think of Mike Rowe? Who is he? And what do you think of him? Oh, Mike Rowe is awesome. Who is uh, he? Uh, Mike Rowe uh, is a TV uh, host. Uh, a narr narrative voice uh, who does voiceovers for different shows. But the, the thing that really put him on the map that drew my attention was the show Dirty Jobs, yeah. which he actually didn't like that title and I'm glad yeah. because he explains in a book he wrote later called Profoundly Disconnected that he thinks that 
There's no such thing as dirty work, clean work. Yeah, you might get dirty doing certain types of work phys like physically, yeah. but it's not good work, bad work, blue, white collar work. There's honest work done well or poorly. That's your choice. Yeah. That's and, Ayn Rand said that, right? I love that. Yeah. And Mike Rowe said that. Montessori said that Montessori, 100 years yeah. ago. Montessori said that 100 years ago. Carrie Ann, in the opening pages of Atlas, I'll never forget you. The description is a bus expertly steered. A bus expertly steered. And I'm thinking even bus drivers can do their job well or badly. Yeah. Ab absolutely. So uh, he, uh, and so that that attracted my attention. Like, well, here's somebody who wants to put a focus on the noble nature of mm. doing honest work, mm. seeking to do it well and creating value in the world and making a living. You don't necessarily have to go to college for that. He's not somebody who says you should never go to college, but that should be a very conscious choice. And if you need to work and save up or work while you're in school, which is what I had done right. uh, to pay for it. I didn't go into student debt. I very carefully, and I, and that this I found this appealing micro's focus on this, is if you want something of value, you work for it. And, uh, and but for a lot of students who are shifting into taking on what he said, crippling student debt. Yes. Uh, and, and for what purpose, not necessarily even getting something of value for it. And, uh, and when they could have, yeah, you know, done done something else. It's not that they or defer going to college until you save up enough or seek a lower cost alternative to maybe achieve the same or superior type of knowledge for something that uh, will help you live a, a flourishing life. So he so he has what's called the Mike Roworks Foundation, where he he raises money for scholarships for people who want to go into the trades, yeah. whether they're young or whether they're they're shifting jobs mid career. So uh, I, I really deeply respect that as opening up the alternatives of what not everybody should feel compelled to go to college or take on crippling student debt. Uh, yeah. There's nothing to be ashamed of if you want to be a welder. Yeah. If you love doing that, like Mike Donegan is described in the Fountainhead, he loves his work as an electrician. He's amazing at it. And he and I, I, I would want to be friends with Mike Donegan. So. So I'm now gonna combine three different questions. I think they're related. Uh, one of them is, well, one of them was, um, how does she apply ethics to her own life? Now, before you answer that, that's a huge question, right? I'm gonna combine it with something you recently did in your life, which is leave academia. But let me back that up with, which was one of the questions also, why did you leave? But then there's this other question, which I'll throw in as well, they're all related. Do you quote, do you think there's something that attracts charlatans to academia? Do you think there's a way to get people with honesty and integrity into academia? Can we fix the colleges or should we just bulldoze them? Well, so, so I think they're related. So they're at your view of the universities, maybe why you left, but that's gotta be an application of ethics to your life. So thoughts on that? Okay, well, those are a series of very large, though not unrelated questions. Yeah. Uh, it, for the, I, I, there's a published, recently published interview where I give an, an extensive accounting of why I chose to leave academia after 25 years of uh, teaching in it, uh, working all my life to uh, be a teacher in it. So uh, there, there's a much longer account, so I'll, I'll give a much briefer version here. Is that is that the interview in the objective standard? Yes, it is. Okay, so let's plug that. There is, I yes, there's an excellent just released, right? Interview with Dr. Biondi. So look for this on, at the objective standard. Yes, I read that. And there is a good account in there of that. Okay, great. Okay, yes. So that's the, that's the longer version. Uh, just to recap very briefly here, uh, there are really two parts. One was epistemological. Uh, there was, while I, I relish the challenge for a certain amount of time. Uh, I was spending about 50% of my time addressing, uh, I would call them epistemological issues with students uh, not knowing how to learn or they thought they were great students. I had worked with a lot of honor students and some of them truly were honors quality, like really standout people. 
the end thinkers, but a lot of them, they they thought that they were good students because they memorized things and had gotten A's and reward. They had uh, got high SAT scores, high GPAs from their high schools. Yeah. And when I asked them to just give a brief analysis of a passage in a work like the Crido, or what what do you think? Do you think this is true or false? What are your reasons why why not? They would completely either blank out on the latter skill, like have no idea whether it's something's true or false or how to even provide a reason for it. And with the former skill, like they would pick out a couple of words and say, that's what this is about. I was like, well, you identified a an I kind of an idea or point in it, but what does that mean? Unpack and explain it. Yeah. And they struggle to do it. Yeah. Uh, if you can't do those minimal skills, that's not even that's not really pa passing quality of work in an introductory philosophy course in the first year of college. And they're like, well, I never got an F before, but you just did. Let's find out why we, you can grow from that. Don't be afraid to fail. Is this, a, <laughs> is it being in it, in it, in it for so many years, is this a decline you saw over time or was this more recent in your uh, space? Or? No, I've, I've noticed this trend for a long time, but okay. I think I was not quite, I wasn't, uh, as self-aware yeah. of the, the patterns until the last maybe decade of teaching. Like okay. I just dealt like, this is where the students are at. Let me help them develop the skills so okay. we can get to really awesome classroom discussions and maybe they'll have breakthroughs in their writing. And after a while, it's like, but why is this happening? And so I started investigating more deeply, why are students coming to college in, in this epistemologically broken way? Yeah. to a very large extent. Um, so that was one big issue. And I wanted to help address that. Like, how can I be part of the solution for increasing numbers of students not coming to the age of 18 right. and being in that position? How can I help be a part of the solution instead of complaining about how unprepared they are? Yeah. Let me be part of the solution and not complaining about the problem. So that was part of it. The other is just an escalating uh, politicization of the university. Right. Uh, at academia. And that's a much bigger topic that I don't think we have time to really delve into. It's a whole separate, perhaps, discussion of its own about the in, the perverse institutional structures of academia. Right. But there are lots of well-meaning people go into it. Yeah. Um, and they, they are seeking, uh, many of them, to they want to educate students. They want to uh, help them achieve lives of meaning and purpose. Uh, yeah. But they were not, uh, many people in graduate school were never equipped to do that. We we never took courses in how to teach in graduate school, unless you proactively, like you were just thrown into a teaching assistantship position, and yeah. rarely were you, uh, or did you engage in discussions with your fellow graduate students or your faculty about how how to create a syllabus, why to create it this way, what are the driving questions, how do you assess work, how do you give feedback. Uh, what do you do when you encounter plagiarism? I was lucky at Bowling Green, we actually did have something called the Graduate Pro Seminar, where we did hash out these issues. It yeah. was, to me, a drop in the bucket of what really good uh, preparation for being a professor could be, but it was better than most other places. So a lot of people, they just replicate the bad models from what went before. They go in and lecture at their students. They don't know how to grade papers, so they they grade inflate because they don't want flack from their students because they want to get tenure. So there are a lot of perverse incentives that if people don't willingly step back and thoughtfully figure out how to do this well, it's very easy for people to be sucked into that. And those are the well-meaning people. Yeah, so I recommend that, stu uh, I recommend that uh, listeners go read that interview of Dr. Biondi. One of the things she mentions on the politicization is, uh, dickering with syllabuses. Uh, syllabuses are usually off limits. The administration is not supposed to tell you what to put on the syllabus and how to teach it. And when they start penetrating that, it's a pretty bad. There are other political aspects of it, but that's, when you said that, I knew exactly what that meant. That is that is precious ground that should not be invaded. And apparently they, they were starting to invade it. Oh, I have a question now here from, just shifts a little bit. I think the rest of these questions, Dr. Biondi, switch more to you're in the general category of what do you think of the objectivist movement? How's it going? What's the best way? But but specifically, um, 
The Atlas Society CEO, Jennifer Grossman asks, are you surprised that objectivism hasn't gained more currency in our culture? And do you have any ideas on how to more effectively uh, spread Rand's ideas? So just, just, just the position of what's the state of the movement? Maybe there's no movement, the variety in the movement, the lack there. What do you think of just generally objectivism and its acceptance or not in the general culture? Uh this is a this is also another large question <laughs> i will try to take a stab at this could have an old hour on this yeah, yeah easily uh i there are people who were seeking to foster an objectivist movement i actually have never counted myself among that yeah i i have by and large in my life pursued things of value to me yes and uh as someone who is drawn toward and agrees with a lot of brands work and the basic principles of objectivism. I have sought to live up to the highest moral and epistemological standards of that in my own life, in my own ways. Yeah. And that's, and when I, I came across, there's something that Rand herself wrote about the objectivist and the possibility of objectivist movement uh, first in a 1968 um, article in her newsletter. And she said, well, that's a movement is not the, the way to go about it. So she, so there are individuals pursuing lives of value, living yeah. according to principle. And when a lot of times a movement is like people, uh, typically see it as a, a, a cause to carry, which yeah. can lead to undermining your ability to pursue your values in some way. And yeah. when you have a movement, you, I think people start getting a little tribal Yeah. Uh, in terms of uh, this is what the movement stands for. And, uh, and this is what I'm fighting for. And it's us against them. And sudden, and now we have to, uh, uh, how are we gonna change the culture? And Rand has a great essay, What Can One Do? Yeah. Like, that, that, and I agree with her. This is not the way to tackle uh, yeah. a, a, approaching anything about change. The only thing you can directly change is yourself. Yeah. And take ownership over the choices in your own life. Every single day of your life, you're faced with a bajillion choices. And uh, in good faith, as frontally and directly and honestly as possible, make the best choice possible every single day and that kind of modeling living like that is a very powerful thing for other people to see and uh and and so that's an important so i resist the whole idea of movement stuff that's not how i have ever lived it's not how i think yeah uh, i know some people do and yeah. when people do that it can i think distort their own particular personal objectives in some cases uh, the other part of the question was why, or at least an, an aspect of the, the question was why are are not a lot of people embracing Rand's ideas in the culture at large? Yeah. Well, Rand's ideas came on the scene less than a hundred years ago. So she, they've really been in the culture in, uh, since the 1940s with the, the publication of the Fountainhead. And these ideas are revolutionary. They threaten a lot of sacred cows. She points out a whole series of false dichotomies in the history of human thought and yeah. philosophy. And for people to, there's so many sides of the false dichotomy that people buy into that are so firmly fixed to their identities yeah. that they, um, it's, a, it's a lot of work one person at a time for people to, be persuaded to change their mind. And ultimately they're the ones who have to change their own minds. Uh, and, and so going out to seek people to convert or to change their minds, it's like, I don't do that either. <laughs> I don't proselytize right. for objectivism. I'm just myself. And right. if people want to discuss ideas, I do. They want to know my reasons, I offer them. And we have this debates or arguments if they wish. And sometimes they change their minds and a lot of times they don't. Yeah. And uh, that's, um, I, I'm not sure that's the most satisfactory answer. Some people might not be satisfied with my response to that, but I think that that's true. It's a great answer. Now, this is an interesting comment. Someone said, this is more of chagrin than anything, but I know you do write about this field. 
Chris Baker, I wish Chris Baker says, I wish the objectivist movement, oh, there's that movement again, had encouraged more people in creative work. We need more actors, musicians, singers, movie directors, authors, songwriters, cartoonists. Now to put in a plug for Atlas Society, we do promote uh, cartoonists and various other visual medium and stuff. So, but that's a good point. I mean, the thought is maybe, uh, I don't, it's not really a question, but do you have any comments on that? Because I know part of your work, which is so fascinating, is applying philosophy to popular culture, like Harry Potter books, like uh, Jane Eyre, and the, so you like doing movie analysis and stuff. So any thoughts on why aren't there more objectivist or objectivist leaning people call it in the arts and entertainment and maybe even sports or maybe I don't, well, yeah. okay so i do have some thoughts on this uh, yeah. uh i don't think there are more or less individuals who are objectivists in those fields than in any others there okay. were uh, objectivists are, are a relatively small fraction of a percent in any field yeah. so i don't think the arts are an exception yeah i also don't fully agree that we need more. It's like, who am I to place demands on what other people should be creating? Right. If so, and also sometimes people pursue work in the arts, not because it organically and authentically emerges from them as their passion, like Howard Wark wanted to be an architect since he was 10. Yeah. You know, nobody placed that demand on him. He was drawn toward it. Right. It's what he wanted. I wanted to be a teacher. Nobody told me that. Right. So there's, and, when people say I should create objectivist art, that often ends up being the worst art I've ever seen. It, it just, it re no, really, because right. people like hand-fistedly think I'm going to impose objectivist principles on this medium. Right. I would not recommend doing it that way. Uh, people might wish to be writers or sculptors or painters, and they might also be objectivists, but you need to be an artist first yeah. and pursue the vision that you love, and it will be authentically you and organically emerge as the beautiful object and work that you've created. And if it does or doesn't obviously reflect objectivist principles, that's secondary. That's secondary to being yourself always. Uh, here's a compliment, Dr. Beyonder. You are the first person who has articulated the way I taught my inner city middle school students. Thank you so much for validating my, uh, something about my, but never answering my question or something like that. I think that's a compliment. Um, okay, we are coming to the end. So uh, any final thoughts where we can go to get more of your work? Do you have any uh, place we might go or is there a central location to learn more about uh, what you're doing? Uh, most of my work is uploaded to academia.edu. Okay. Not all of it, but, but the vast bulk of it is there. Uh, and there, there are some other works that are more popular and not academic in orientation yeah. that if you just Google me, okay. uh, I have published in some more popular outlets, uh, especially when I'm doing pop culture and philosophy or, or movie or play critiques. Yes, I have found the same thing. I mean, I knew most of much of your work, but in Googling in the last couple of weeks or so, yes, very much available on the internet, very much great interviews, great talks and things like that. Yes, go ahead. And on academia.edu, I do maintain an updated CV that people yeah. can look at and everything I've done, uh, it's kept fairly current. Everything I've done is on there and external links to pop culture stuff is, will take you outside of that website. Right, and one of the things we didn't talk about today, but actually you did for the Atlas Society, I think back in 2014, also available on the uh, at um, YouTube, uh, Enemies of Capitalism a two-part lecture at the Atlas Summit, I think it was up in New Hampshire, right, 2014, and she discusses Marx, McIntyre, and Rawls. So McIntyre was a conservative, actually. So, so criticisms of capitalism coming from the socialists, the conservatives, and then the welfare statists who was uh, Rawls. So check those out as well. Those are very good, and that was done for the Atlas Society. That was, for, that was fun. We have to wrap up now, but I also wanted to plug in about five minutes, Jennifer Grossman's gonna be talking with Stephen Hicks. Dr. Biondi, I know you know Stephen Hicks. So you're a big fan, they're, you're fans of each other. Uh, Clubhouse, and they're gonna, the topic is, is capitalism good or bad for women? That's a great topic. Clubhouse is, uh, if you know, a special app where you go in and it's not visual, it's aud auditory only, 
but it's like you're on a conference call and you get to join the conversation and listen to the conversation. So it's very cool. Clubhouse, just go to Atlas Society looking for Clubhouse. Dr. Biondi, we are out of time, which I am, it's too bad, too bad we're out of time. We could have speak, spoken for three hours, right? About some of these things. So I wanna thank you, thank you so much for uh, joining us. I hope, uh, uh, I, I hope you enjoyed it as well. Um, I did, thank you, Richard. You're very, very welcome and please come back. Let me close this by saying uh, that I thank all of you, not just to Professor Biondi, but all of you for joining us today. And uh, again, I'm Richard Salzman, a senior scholar at the Atlas Society. Uh, if you enjoyed this, if you enjoyed the video and it will be available later, uh, or any of our other materials, uh, just consider making a tax deductible contribution to TAS. And then also uh, another Atlas asks coming up. Remember, this is the 73rd episode. So you can look at 72 prior ones that are very cool. But next week, the interviewee will be Blake Harris. Blake Harris will be the guest for the next episode of uh, Atlas Society. Dr. Biondi, great to see you. I will see you again. Thank you all for joining and I'll sign off now. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Great to see you.